Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. On December 27th, 2008, I remember that morning vividly, I woke up feeling fantastic. I had a very good night's sleep. I was rested, refreshed, ready for the day. It was just after Christmas on December 27th, uh, the day before, the 26th. I had a lot of family and friends in town. We had a really big party. Um, That particular year, on the 26th of December, it was unseasonably warm. got up to 70 degrees that day. But even on the 27th, it was still quite warm for Nebraska in the winter at 40 degrees. That's not bad. You can't complain about that. But all of those issues are not why I remember that day. I remember that day because it was my wedding day, and I was overjoyed for what was going to happen. Um, I remember waking up that morning, getting ready. I remember driving over to the church with my brother and his wife, and I remember singing in the car on the way over. I was, I was ecstatic. I remember the pictures, a lot of fun with friends that we'd had for a long time and family members. I remember waiting for the ceremony to start. I remember seeing all of these family friends who I, I was surprised that they had given up that day to make the trip out to where the wedding was and greeting them as they came into the church. And then I remember a panic attack. Uh, Suddenly, about 15 minutes before the wedding began, the weight and the seriousness of what I was about to do settled on my soul like a collapsing elephant. I was terrified. What am I doing? How did I get here? What should I be doing at this moment? Now, I remember in that moment, there were really two things that helped to calm my nerves and settle me down and and get me moving forward to do the things that I needed to do in this wedding. The first and most important thought that I had was I knew that I did love Allison. I knew that I wanted to marry this woman. So that was a, a very important part of what was stabilizing me at the moment. This isn't crazy. Uh, You've known her for a long time. You did ask her, and she, for some reason, said yes. Let's move forward with this. But on the other side, there was sort of this other thought that helped to stabilize me in the moment. It was the recognition that this isn't something you can just postpone easily. You can't just say, hey, guys, having a little big feel moment, can I just take a break for an hour or two, a day, uh, while I sort out my feels here? No, to do that would have been disastrous for me, for her, for our family, for our friends, for all of these people who had come out to celebrate this great day for us. I, I knew, since I wanted to marry her, and I knew that it would have great consequences 
If for some reason I pulled back or ran away or whatever was going through my terrified uh, mind at the moment, it would be a disaster. It was both of those thoughts that helped me to move forward. Remember the pastor telling me that it was time to go? I remember shaking as I was helping my grandparents uh, and, and my wife's grandparents to their seats. But then, of course, um, when my bride began to make her way down the aisle, all of those fears vanished. I knew that I was in the right place doing the right thing. I just had to sort of work through those emotions at the moment. Now, as we come to these three parables, Jesus is concluding his kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13. There's one more parable that, Lord willing, we'll work on next, look at next week which is not so much a parable about the kingdom, but about those who are the scribes who are trained for the kingdom of heaven. We'll look at that next week. But here Jesus is, is drawing the final points in this chapter about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And what Jesus says is he's using kind of both of those similar kinds of ideas that I had to work through on my wedding day. He's on the one hand saying, there is tremendous blessedness and reward for entering into the kingdom of heaven. And he uses two parables to make that point. But then on the other side, he gives a great warning, a dire warning, about tremendous, eternal, horrifying consequences for those who do not repent and embrace the kingdom of heaven by faith. As Jesus applies everything he's taught us about the kingdom of heaven so far, He's telling us that the kingdom of heaven is a double-edged sword. That's our big idea for today, that the kingdom of heaven is a double-edged sword. And as we think about these three parables, essentially Jesus is giving three ways to think about the kingdom, to relate to the kingdom. First of all, surprised by the kingdom, the surprise of the joy of the kingdom. Second of all, seeking the kingdom, uh, seeking for the kingdom, what should we, we should do when we encounter the kingdom. But then third, sorrows from the kingdom. And this is where Jesus concludes on a very dire warning, sorrows from the kingdom. So first of all, surprised by the kingdom, in Matthew 13, verse 44, let me read this verse again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, if you remember, if you've been paying attention to the parables of the kingdom so far, Jesus began with the parable of the sower, where he talked about the different responses that different people have to the kingdom of heaven. Then he gave us the parable of the weeds, where he explained why it is, if the kingdom has indeed come, that evil continues to reign. It will reign, Jesus, or, or continues to exist. It will exist until the very end. Then third, Jesus uh, last week, we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, where Jesus talked about the surprising eventual victory of the kingdom. But finally, with this parable and the next parable we're go going to look at, Jesus is giving us application, what we should do with the kingdom once we find it. And the first thing that Jesus says in the parable of the hidden treasure is that there is great value in this kingdom that should lead us to be willing to part with anything that we have in order to lay possession of the kingdom, lay hold of the kingdom. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now that may sound uh, like a bit of a fanciful premise to start a story with. If I told you about treasure hidden in a field, that certainly we have children's stories about buried treasure and things like that, pirate's treasure, that kind of a thing. 
But understand, historically, that was not so unlikely in Jesus' day as it is in ours. Because if you think about days before there were banks and safe deposit boxes and vaults and things like that, you couldn't deposit your money into a bank and just have it sit there. Nor if you had solid assets, gold or treasure or some of that sort of sort, uh, you couldn't just put it in a safe deposit box. If you needed to, you would have to hide it. You had to keep it with yourself, and you had to hide it when danger arose. If, if wars were passing through your area, or if you were headed out on a journey and didn't think it's safe to carry it with you on your journey, what would you do? Well, you would, you would hide it. And if, as the war passed through, you were killed, or if on your journey you didn't make it back for one reason or another, that wealth, that treasure would remain hidden where you left it. So while people weren't always finding hidden treasure, it was at least a plausible um, point of departure for, for Jesus' parable here. Now, as we get into this story, what this man does when he finds this treasure hidden in a field, well, he covers it back up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has in order to buy that field. Now, some, as they think about what this man is doing, raise questions. Isn't this unethical? He knows there's treasure there. There's sort of disclosure that's not happening. He's saying, well, yes, I'd like to buy your field. And not telling the owner of the field that there is a treasure in here. Um, a couple reasons that shouldn't, if that's troubling your ethical sense, uh, sensibilities, that shouldn't trouble you. The first thing to notice is that um, he doesn't actually steal the treasure. Again, this treasure was hidden in a field. The owner of the field would be none the wiser if he just took the treasure and went away. But he doesn't do that. He puts the treasure back in the field and then buys the field in order to gain the treasure. But the second point, and this is always something we have to think about when we think about Jesus' parables, is that Jesus is often giving us details that we cannot press further than they should be pressed. So the point of this is, is not about the ethics of his exact business arrangement here. What he wants us to see is the value of this kingdom. This man went and sold all that he had in order to buy the field. That's the point that we're supposed to look at. Otherwise, you get into other parables and you, you run into problems. In another parable, Jesus compares his father to an unjust judge. And that's to make the point that even when a widow complains again and again to the unjust judge, that unrighteous judge will eventually give her justice. And how much more will your father in heaven is the comparison? Not that God is unjust, but that if even an unjust judge does it, won't your Father in heaven answer the cries of his children? Or elsewhere, Jesus compares wise disciples to a dishonest manager who takes debts belonging to his master and slashes them in order to gain particular benefits for himself. Now again, the point is not that we should play fast and loose in our bookkeeping, the point is that we should be wise about the opportunities we have, knowing that we have an eternal kingdom. The details in parables are important, but we cannot press them further than intended. So what are we meant to see here? Well, the first main point that Jesus wants us to see in this particular parable is about the hiddenness of the kingdom of heaven. And we talked a little bit last week about how Jesus says that the kingdom of God is, is hidden. He talks about that in different ways. Sometimes he says it is hidden. Sometimes he says the kingdom of heaven is revealed to you in a mystery. What we see here is the kingdom of heaven is described as a treasure that is hidden in a field. That is, it's hidden in plain sight. In those days, people were always walking through fields. You know, if you live in town, you may not see 
a field, unless you live in particular parts of town where there's still some cornfields down in Bellevue or uh, northwest Omaha or something like that. But there, they would have always been walking around or past or through fields. And what Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like that treasure that people are walking past day after day after day. It's hidden in plain sight, but no one knows about it. To his Jewish audience, Jesus was very likely describing the function of the scriptures. He says, you you have the scriptures. You've been reading them. You've been studying them. But it's like a field that you're passing by every day, not recognizing that there is a treasure in there that you might have. In John chapter 5, verses 39, Jesus rebukes the Jewish leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is saying, you you know where to look. You're passing by the scriptures every day, but you don't know that they are pointing to me, the king, the hidden treasure that the scriptures are talking about. The plain, ordinary exterior of the scriptures are hiding the mysteries of the kingdom within their pages. And what this parable is telling us, what the rest of the Bible tells us, is that we need eyes to see Eyes that the Holy Spirit opens so that we may see the treasure of Jesus Christ held out for us in the Scriptures. That's the first point that Jesus wants us to see in this particular parable. The second point is about the great value of the kingdom. The kingdom is hidden, hidden in plain sight, but the kingdom is also of great value. This man sells all that he has in order to possess the kingdom. Now, when this man sells all that he has, and we're also going to see this come up in the next parable, it doesn't mean that the kingdom of God must be earned by something that we do or by our own wealth. It doesn't mean that it must be purchased in some way for us to acquire it. What the rest of the scriptures declare is that the gospel of the kingdom is a free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ held out to us by all those who look to him in faith. Faith apart from works. What Jesus is saying here is not that we must buy the kingdom by something we do or earn. It's that the kingdom is worth parting with anything that we may have in order to possess it. So in other words, to seek to earn the kingdom is not what Jesus is talking about. That's a very different thing than talking about what the kingdom may and indeed will cost us. We don't earn the kingdom, that's false, but the kingdom will cost us everything. Because see, those who think that they must earn the kingdom, think that they approach Christ by their own wealth, by their own strength, by their own merit. I have something to bring to the table, and that's how I will lay hold of the kingdom. What Jesus is talking about is something very different. He's saying, if we recognize the cost of the kingdom... We recognize that we are only bringing our poverty. It's not that I've saved up enough money to get the kingdom from Jesus. It's that I come as someone who cannot afford this. But that I'd gladly part with everything if it would hold me back from gaining what Jesus has to offer. Now, this is true for all of us. that The kingdom will cost us everything. But as a, as a pastor who has served for over a decade and walked with people in very different situations, whenever I think about a passage like this, Immediately, there are people who come to mind where I think this is particularly true. They're they're not in Christian families where converting to Christ is something that is celebrated and encouraged, but people 
for whom following Christ means losing family, friends, or lifestyles, perhaps places where they are very entrenched in areas of sexual promiscuity, addiction, or whether they are pursuing status or wealth or pleasure on their own. There are people who have had to give up everything, and it is vividly true. It's not just sort of a, a gradual change of their life. It means leaving everything behind. And yet whatever they had previously gained, they come to a point where they realize that they must count it as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, their Lord. Remember, that was the text from our assurance of pardon today. Don't think that you may earn something. Recognize that we all, whether it comes immediately or whether it comes over the course of our life, decision by decision, encounter by encounter, where we realize that we must lose all to gain Christ. These people have to recognize that he is worth it in order to lay hold of him. The question that all of us face this morning is, do we think Jesus is worth it? Is he worth selling everything that we have in order to buy the field that we might have Christ? Well, in the second parable, it's a twin parable. It's telling the same story, but from a different angle to bring out different elements. What's interesting about the first parable is that in the first parable, the man in the field doesn't particularly seem to be looking for treasure. But in the second parable, the merchant certainly is seeking treasures, pearls. The merchant is someone who's dedicating his life to seeking this treasure. What then should he do once he finds it? That's the question that's posed by the second parable. So here we come to the second issue of seeking for the kingdom. Surprised by the kingdom in the first parable, now seeking for the kingdom in verses 45 through 46. Notice, though, that this man is not searching for one fine pearl. Notice that he's seeking many fine pearls. He's a merchant. This is his job. He goes through and and tries to find various assets that he can acquire at one price and sell at a better price. But again, the kingdom of heaven is like this merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now again, if we're asking, who does this have in mind? I think Don Carson is right in his commentary when he suggests that Jesus may have in mind the entire religious heritage of the Jews. You think about the entire Jewish system of of sacrifices, the, the Jewish teaching of Torah. You think of all of the traditions they had. They have all of these fine pearls. And Jesus is saying, you have now found the one pearl. All of these other pearls, to whatever degree they were good, were always pointing forward to this great pearl of great value who is standing in front of you. Will you cash in everything? This merchant seems to sell all of his business assets, all of his personal possessions in order to lay hold of this pearl. And that's the question for them. Will you lay hold of everything once you have found him? Because if not, it raises a real question of what they had been seeking in the first place. This parable has a particular point for religious people then. Some of you maybe have grown up in the church, who have grown up around religion. Maybe you spent your entire life seeking religious things for whatever part of your personality that that fits. The question is, whether you are really looking for Jesus or whether you are looking for a thousand pearls that simply resemble him. 
C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book that I, I find really intriguing and fascinating. It's a book called The Great Divorce. Um, it's a very imaginative book if you've read it. It's, he gives a disclaimer. This isn't trying to talk about what actually would happen. I'll explain why that, he says that in a moment. This is rather trying to consider what's happening in people's hearts. So he's imaginatively trying to think about if you have people who spend their entire lives pursuing other than Jesus, something other than the kingdom of heaven, wanting something other than the pearl of great value, what would happen then if you actually took these people out of hell? That's the warning that we're going to see in the next passage. What would happen if you took them out of hell and actually offered them heaven? You put them on a bus to take them out of hell and put them into heaven. Would they enjoy heaven? And what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at here is that ultimately, heaven and hell are not just questions of where some place is nice, like a nice beach vacation, and some other place is bad. It's ultimately a question of what we are looking for in our hearts, ultimately. And so, for example, he talks about uh, different conversations of different people as they're wrestling. Do they really want what heaven truly has to offer, namely a relationship with Jesus? And in one of these conversations, there's a thousand conversations where he considers different hearts who, whatever they're seeking, are not ultimately looking after Jesus. In one of these conversations, the, the narrator is witnessing, overhearing a conversation between one religious scholar talking with another religious scholar. And the one religious scholar is trying to encourage his friend to go with him up to the mountain where they will meet God face to face. But the second religious scholar is not so certain. His whole life has been spent pursuing religious things. But before he goes up the mountain, he says, well, I must have assurances. I must have promises that if I go there, that I'd be able to have a broader scope for the use of my vast talents. Or that I'll have assurances that when I get there, I will be able to continue to pursue free inquiry of the truth wherever I may pursue it. But the first one, the one who's seemingly already been up the mountain, says this. He says, no, I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you not to the land of questions, but to the land of answers, and you shall see the face of God. You would think that would be a promise. Here you will have the pearl of great price, but the second religious scholar suddenly decides, you know what? I can't go with you. In fact, I realize I'm late. I have to get back on the bus and head back to hell. Why? Well, because we have a little theological society down there, and I'm scheduled to deliver a paper that if Jesus, having been killed so young, if he had lived much longer, maybe he would have gotten over these bigoted ideas that we find in the New Testament. He's still trying to argue against the pearl of great price. His entire life lived for religion, but not for the pearl of Jesus Christ himself. For those of you who are religious, are you seeking Jesus or are you seeking something else? The friendships you have, the family approval that it brings you, the societal standing, whatever it is, are you seeking Jesus or are you seeking a thousand pearls that merely resemble him? Jesus is saying the kingdom is worth it. There is blessedness there. But then Jesus turns and says, if you do not repent, 
If you ignore my words, Jesus says, understand this isn't just a game. This isn't just a, a conversation where we can bat around ideas. This is a matter of eternal life and death. And in this third parable, the parable of the net, Jesus gives us a dire warning. And here's where we come to the third section, sorrows from the kingdom. In verse 47, we read again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Now, the word for kind there is interesting. It's, it's the word um, genus. I'll just tell you, that's the Greek word. You can maybe hear how that sounds like our word for genesis or our word for genealogy. It's an idea of a descent, origins and descent. It's a very strange word for a fish. But as one commentator says, this is a very natural way that you would describe genealogies and origins of people. What Jesus is saying is that these are fish from every people, every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And the net of the kingdom of heaven is cast out into the sea and is drawing all of these people, not just from Israel, but from all over, onto the shore. Well, what happens here? Well, in verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. In the parable, Jesus has just barely touched on the difference between the good and the bad. There will be a separation between the good fish and the bad fish that are drawn in by this net. Now, this is, at least this far, very similar to the parable of the weeds. There are weeds, and in the midst of those weeds, uh, or there, excuse me, there is wheat growing up, and in the midst of the wheat, weeds have been sown, and weeds are growing up along with them. And at the end of the age, these are going to be separated. The wheat is going to be harvested and brought into the, the barn of the kingdom of our heavenly Father, but the weeds will be plucked up and cast into the fires of hell. Notice here that while the parable of the weeds emphasize the blessedness of our Father's kingdom, and whereas the previous two parables talked about the great surpassing blessedness of the kingdom, Notice in this parable how little attention is given to the fate of the righteous, to the fate of the good fish. So verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. That's the last we hear of the righteous. And throw them, the evil ones, into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point of this parable is not to contrast the blessedness of the righteous with the terrifying fate of the wicked. Really, the point is primarily about the terrifying fate of the wicked. That those who reject the kingdom of Jesus will be cast in hell forever. The kingdom of heaven is blessed. It's worth giving up everything in order to possess, but at the same time, there is another principle operating here. Because the kingdom of heaven is a double-edged sword. Again, on my wedding day, when I was struck with a panic attack, didn't know what to do, it was both the promise of blessing as well as, this will not go well if I walk away from this. They both helped continue into place until I was able to see my bride coming down the aisle. Jesus, until the coming of the kingdom, when our great bridegroom will come to heaven, when everything will be clarified, when we will no longer be confused about the blessedness of the kingdom is telling us that until that day, we need both the promises of the blessedness of the kingdom and the warnings 
on the other edge of the sword. But if we do not repent, there is a miserable fate awaiting. The application this morning from these three parables about the double-edged sword of the kingdom is this. Embrace the kingdom with joy and by faith. Part of what Jesus wants us to see in these three parables is the great blessedness of the kingdom. You know, to you this morning, you may be here and you came without necessarily searching for anything in particular. Maybe someone drug you along, a family member or a friend. Uh, Maybe you wandered in from I don't know where, but you're just trying to see what's happening here. Jesus is announcing in his word that what he offers you is worth giving up the most treasured, priceless possessions that you own in order to have him. Even if you weren't looking for him here today, on the ordinary plain pages of Scripture, held out to you is a treasure hidden in a field. If you're here this morning and you had no particular expectations, I want you to understand that you have stumbled upon a hidden treasure in a field. You've stumbled upon the gospel of Jesus. Maybe you are here this morning. Maybe you are here believing in this king or at least having professed to believe in Jesus, but you have either lost sight of his value or you have never really understood this value. You've been pursuing religion not for the pearl of great price, but for a thousand smaller pearls who resemble him. Well, this morning in the troubles and trials of your life, if you've forgotten the desirability, the goodness of Jesus, Jesus is reminding you of exactly that. This merchant who spent his life searching for fine pearls was willing to part with everything. Why? Because the pearl of great price is worth it. And he is for you. Or if you are here and wondering, should I really be here? Understand Jesus is talking about the great blessedness, the surpassing value of this king and his kingdom. Because in this kingdom, the king personally loves and he knows his people. The king, the one represented by the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, This king was sent by his father into this world to live for his people, to die for his people, the cruel death of the cross, and to rise from the dead bodily for their sins. This king came into this world to secure our salvation, our forgiveness, our cleansing, and he has secured these blessings for us by his own blood and through his own everlasting resurrection life. The king offers his people infinite, eternal satisfaction to quench their thirst by rivers of living water that when we drink from the water that Jesus gives us, doesn't just go into us, but it fills us up until overflowing, then rivers of joy flow out from us. This king commands his hosts, his angelic servants, concerning his people to guard them in all their ways to be the keeper of his people, the shade on their right hand so that the sun shall not strike us by day or the moon by night. This king is the one that you have looked for, that you have longed for, that you have sought out, whether you knew you were looking for him or not. If you really can find salvation and satisfaction and safety in him, isn't he worth whatever you may have to sacrifice along the way? 
You know, there's a particular moment when Jesus' disciples are most deeply discouraged. A lot of other disciples are walking away from Jesus. And so Jesus gathers his 12 and says, are you wanting to leave also? And Peter, speaking for the disciples, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This morning, if you found the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, where else could you possibly go? Even when following Jesus is difficult, the kingdom promises everlasting blessedness and reward. You are on the right path. Let these parables strengthen you this morning. But if the carrot, the, the promise of blessedness is, off, is not enough, Jesus also warns of the stick. He warns of punishment. Now, I want to be very clear. I would not dare to threaten you into the kingdom. But as a minister in service of the king, my task as a herald is that I am charged with declaring the decrees of the king. And the king warns us here and throughout the scriptures that if you do not repent, you will be thrown into an eternal, fiery furnace of hell. In Revelation 14, verse 11, we read that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Because in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth without end. Right now, you swim in the same sea as the sons of the kingdom, but the day will come when the net will be drawn into the shore and when angels will separate the good from the wicked. Not those who have earned something in their life, but those who recognize that in their poverty they have nothing and look to Jesus and receive riches of righteousness from him. They will be separated from those who have depended on what they had and will be found unworthy of the kingdom. Right now, there's nothing visibly, externally to separate you from the sons of the kingdom. But Jesus promises you that on the last day, that separation will be made not on the basis of the works, but on the basis of faith, on the basis of what Jesus has done that is freely given to those who trust in him for salvation. And woe to those who are cast away from the blessed presence of the king. Following Jesus is a terrifying prospect. Following Jesus requires you to count the cost, requires you to take up the cross, requires you to recognize that you are going to your death as you seek to follow Jesus. But on the other hand, what the scriptures say, far more fearful, far more fearful will it be to fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. Jesus holds out blessedness and life, and he holds out the promise, the warning of death for those who do not believe. Life and death are held out before you. Choose life this day that you might live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, by your grace, would give your people faith to choose Christ, to lay hold of Christ, not by anything that is in us, but by your gracious mercy upon blind and deaf and poor and pitiable, miserable, wretched sinners who don't want Jesus, but who desperately need him. We pray that you would open our eyes to see our great need for a great Savior and that you would lead men and women 
and boys and girls to salvation this morning through faith in him, just as you have been doing throughout history. Continue to build this kingdom until the day Jesus comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.